1 John 2.18 tells us about the spirit of Antichrist that has been around for 2,000 years, but then also mentions the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? From whence does he come? And what will he do upon arrival? The Roman Emperor Gaius, also known as Caligula, began his reign in AD 37. He attempted to place his own image, an idol, in a temple in Jerusalem, according to Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, but was thwarted. Likewise, Antiochus IV erected an altar to Zeus uh, in the temple, which led to the Maccabean Revolt. Both of these ungodly men were considered to be the Antichrist by their peers. Today, we are going to see what the Bible says about the future Antichrist. Uh, let's consider first three questions before unpacking 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Question number one, what consequence emerges from misunderstanding biblical eschatology. In other words, when we don't understand the end times according to the scriptures, what consequence do we endure? Number two, what is keeping the Antichrist from dominating much of the world? And then question number three, what will put an end to the Antichrist world domination? Here we are, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 through 12. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Join me in prayer. Father, I, I thank you for the revelation given to us through the Bible. 
Lord, we've learned about the spirit of Antichrist from other books, but now we focus on the Antichrist. May the spirit of God guide us through our study today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Greek word order is translated differently from the English word order. Erotomen de humas adelphoi, the literal Greek, which can be translated, but we request you, brethren. That begins the verse and actually matches exactly what is stated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. In our English Bible, the New King James Version, at the end of verse 1, it says, we ask you. In other words, the emphasis of the request is placed at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. Beginning in verse 1, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you. The word now Shows a transition. We had Paul's prayer back in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. We have before us a new topic. And the words we ask. Observe, Paul doesn't command these saints what to do here. They are a model church. Paul has a good relationship with them. They seem to respect his authority. But the... Greek verb ask could be translated inquires or as we have ask and it means to entreat request but it shows a warm and a friendly tone which is further bolstered by the term brethren those from the same womb it carries the tone of a friendship that Paul has with these saints now observe in verse 1 The article, the, connects two statements. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Both statements have a point of connectivity. Observe as well the word our used twice. It's our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, first, the coming the personal coming. It's the idea of a visit. It's not just an appearance. And the coming of the Lord speaks of that which is permanent. Do you recall back in 1 Thessalonians four seventeen? Thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. This coming refers to the rapture and then brings together with it our gathering together to him. The gathering together, the term gathering only occurs twice from the Greek New Testament. This is so interesting. The first time we have it is right here. Speaking about when the rapture occurs, guess what? We have a home going, the gathering of the saints from the church age. But it was used also in Hebrews chapter 10 
in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling. Got the word assembling? Same term used here. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner is of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approach. In Hebrews 10, 25, we are given a command not to neglect the physical assembling of ourselves together. But if you will, we get together on a weekly basis based upon the truth that Christ conquered death. That's why the early church met on the first day of the week. And we will continue to do so, or at least we are exhorted and commanded to do so until we have the ultimate gathering, the time when we are brought into the presence of the Lord permanently. You know, today I hear many excuses why people physically don't go to church. And I just tell everybody the same thing. You know, our opinions, our excuses, that's not what counts. It's what the word of God says. And the Bible is very clear, not forsaking the assembling ourselves together. And can I ask you a question? Do you really think that if we neglect meeting together as a church physically, that you and I will be prepared for the great gathering when we are before him? And I would say, I think not gathering. So there's the rapture are gathering together to him. And in verse 2, Paul is concerned because the brethren are soon shaken in mind and troubled. The word soon conveys the idea of rashly or hastily, but they're shaken. It literally means to move up and down. It's used, the term, first of all, over in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He said, what do you think you're going to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The term is also used literally of Paul and Silas in prison. In Acts chapter 16, verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken. Here we have the metaphorical Use shaken in mind. Paul doesn't want them to be shaken in mind or troubled to experience tumult or clamor. By the way, the verb here troubled is present tense, whereas the former verb shaken is past tense. See, the shaken shows the beginning of the agitation and then the trouble here shows that it continues. And I want to point out that both shaken and troubled are passive voice verbs. There are three agents that we're about to see that have caused them, the Thessalonians, to be shaken and troubled. And each one is introduced by the preposition dia, translated by. So what are the three outside sources that have caused them being shaken up and then troubled? Well, first of all, either by spirit. Now, prophecy did exist in the Thessalonian church. Back in the first epistle, 
chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, do not despise prophesying. The New Testament was not complete. There was a need for prophets. And Paul had commanded the saints that when you have a true prophet of God speaking, you need to listen to him. But here there is a deception. Someone had given a miscommunication. First John chapter four gives us the command, brethren, those that are beloved by God, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. How do you test the spirit? Something you cannot see by the message that is being proclaimed. And that's what we have in first John four, two and three, that as you listen to the message, you are able to determine if the person is speaking truth that Jesus has come into flesh in that instance, or is a liar that he has not come in the flesh. So there was a communication that was given by spirit. Then also there was a preached message. It says here by word. And then finally, there was a written correspondence by letter. But notice here what Paul writes as if from us, the three fraudulent communications claim to come from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And what was the unified message as though the day of Christ had come, had come perfect tense verb. It had come in the past with the results continuing. I'd like to point out because as some of you are looking into your Bibles at this point, you're seeing it doesn't say the day of Christ, but the day of the Lord, a textual variant. The day of the Lord is that time that Amos refers to back in chapter 5 and verse 18 of a day of darkness, predominantly referring throughout the scripture to the tribulation period, the time of wrath where God pours out his judgment on the earth, corresponds to Revelation chapter 6 through 19. The day of the Lord is extended by what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.10, carrying through the millennial kingdom. But the majority of Greek manuscripts have the day of Christ. It's referring to the same time frame. But the focus is upon the blessing because at the rapture, what happens? We're taken to be with the Lord. Even during the tribulation where the wrath of God is being poured out on the unjust, what are we doing? We're enjoying the presence of the Lord in heaven. And that carries throughout the millennial kingdom when we come back to the earth. So we have the day of Christ. So in essence, these saints were misled. The communications said they were now in the day of Christ. In other words, they have missed the rapture. And they thought, oh boy. Now, I want to point something out to you. Clearly, the Thessalonians believed that the rapture would occur before the tribulation. Because they were shaken, they were troubled. Would they be shaken and troubled if they thought that the rapture did not occur until the end of the tribulation? Why? Because they would be looking for the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments and the seven old judgments. No, they knew the promise of the Lord 
that they would be kept from that hour of trial. They understood that there would be a physical and a bodily deliverance, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, before the tribulation period. Then Paul writes, but let no one deceive you by any means. Deceive, a strong term. It not only has the verb to deceive, but the preposition affixed to it, which intensifies it. The same form occurs in 2 Corinthians 11.3, as the serpent deceived Eve. There's a strong deception. So Paul shows that the saints are not in the day of Christ and for two reasons. First, he says, for the day of Christ will not come unless the falling away comes first. The falling away. Traditionally, what you read and what I've heard is that people point you back to 1 Timothy 4 and in 2 Timothy 3 about the church age apostasia or falling away. By the way, an apostate is someone that was identified with Christ, never believed on Christ, but then walks away from Christ. First John 2.19, they went out from us for they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. That's the idea of someone that is an apostate. But we are not dealing with the church age here. Where are we at contextually? We are in that tribulation period. So the apostasy that is being referred to here is what occurs during the tribulation period. This connects with Matthew chapter 24. So would you turn there, please? Matthew chapter 24 with the Olivet Discourse. Sadly, many have connected Matthew 24 with the rapture of the church, which is inaccurate. Matthew chapters 24 and 25 pertain to the tribulation period. And then the second coming of Christ at the end of that period. Matthew 24, pick it up in verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, this must have rocked their world, if you will, in a lot of ways. No pun intended with rock. Do you not see all these things? Uh, surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? Notice they want timing. And what will be the sign of your coming? See, we know this is not the rapture. There are no signs that occur to lead to the rapture. The rapture could have occurred in Paul's day. He believed that, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 17. He uses the verb we there. We, what, who are alive and remain. You get the idea there? He thought he could be raptured. When you have signs, we're talking about the obvious signs communicated in the scripture. As you read about in Revelation 6 to 19, it point to the second coming of Christ, where he physically comes to the earth at the end of the tribulation period. Then the second question, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one and observe deceives you. 
If you read the entire account in Matthew 24, you will come upon the word deceive often. He's concerned. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So the apostasy that is taking place is that that occurs during the tribulation period, not the church age because of the context of our passage. And also while you're here in Matthew 24, come down to verse 24. Since we're here, I'll throw this in at no extra charge. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So Jesus is pointing out what will be taking place during the tribulation period. And then we have, and you can start to turn to Daniel chapter 9, and the man of sin is revealed. The man of sin, an expression used of the Antichrist. Now we need to go and take a careful look at Daniel 9.24 through 27, which is such a detailed passage given timing of the Antichrist's future role and even that of Jesus's triumphal Entry. Now, as you're turning to Daniel chapter 9, I want to point out, and this is critical to the interpretation, and whenever you're looking at a passage of Scripture, you have to note the time frame or time frames that are being dealt with in that text. I believe the vast majority of commentators miss the two foci that are given in this passage. In other words, there are just two time frames that are emphasized, the 69th and then the 70th weeks of Daniel. Now, I'll explain some of the details as we walk through this together. Daniel 9, 24 through 27, it says 70 weeks. Now, that's not a good translation. It literally says from the Hebrew, 70 sevens. And we know that since in the same chapter, verse 2, we're looking at years. Actually, Daniel had been reading Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. So, 77s, if you will, 77s being 490, we're dealing with years are determined, but for whom? For your people and for where? Your holy city. So it's to the Jews and the holy city of Jerusalem. Now we have three negatives and then three positives stated. Notice, first of all, to finish the transgression, the ending of Israel's rebellion, if you will, to make an end of sins. To seal up is the idea here, or to restrain sin. And then notice as well the third negative, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Speaking of Jesus' sacrifice. And now we have three positive 
statements to bring in everlasting righteousness here, a reference to the future millennial kingdom. We have the rapture, the seven years of tribulation, and then the thousand year rule and reign of Christ, according to Revelation chapter 20. So to bring in everlasting righteousness, notice as well, the seal of vision and prophecy, in other words, to fulfill prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And it could be the most holy place here being the future millennial temple. So we're looking at a prophecy dealing with the 70 weeks or 70 years, 490 years that we have before us. Now, within that period, we have just two time frames that are emphasized, the 69th and the 70th. Seven. Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, this is key. Back in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, King Artaxerxes, on March 5th, 444 BC, gave such a command, which is the commencement of the prophecy. When you track this out, it turns out to be 173,880 days, and it takes us to an event. It says, until Messiah the Prince. But notice here, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So we're dealing with the 69th seven, okay? Very important here. In essence, from the command of Artaxerxes until the time that Jesus would come and present himself to be the Messiah would be this 173,880 days or the 69 sevens. And guess what? It's fulfilled to the day. In Luke chapter 19, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as predicted, from Zechariah chapter 9, the people did not fully understand who he was and what his mission was. Because in Luke 19 and verse 42, and note that reference, Luke 19, 42, Jesus says, if you had known, it's a second class condition there, assuming that they did not know. If you had known that this day, what day? The day is predicted by Daniel, this exact day, if you understood it, essentially, Jesus says you would have received me, but they did not. It was a superficial reception that was given to him, but that particular day. Now, with this in mind, looking at the first of the two points of focus, the 69th week, Notice now in verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, okay, this is when you put the other seven is 69th, Messiah shall be cut off. And did not Jesus die just several days after he had presented himself as the Messiah to the nation? And the answer is yet, but not for himself. Now, here's where I believe the mistake comes in, because people spring forward several decades to the destruction of of Jerusalem in AD 70, but that's not one of the two points of reference in our predictive prophecy here, because the second one is the 70th week 
of Daniel pointing to the tribulation period, seven years, right? Revelation chapter six through 19, because then it goes on to say, and the people of the prince who is to come and see, because people in your minds think, okay, this has to be Rome because of the destruction of the temple. Therefore, the Antichrist must come from Rome, but this is not what it's talking about. It's looking at the future Destruction of the temple during the tribulation period. Because think about it. Why do we have Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48? The design for a new temple during the millennium. The answer is because the Antichrist will not only go in and proclaim that he is God, but then we'll destroy that very temple. Stay with me here. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. This corresponds perfectly with Zechariah chapter 14 because of the devastation that will take place to Jerusalem and even the destruction of the temple. Notice here, continue with working with the 70th seven or the time of the tribulation. Then he, speaking of the Antichrist, because he is the one that is the prince who is to come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The Antichrist will broker peace with the nation of Israel for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation. In Matthew chapter 24, the Antichrist will have an idol set up in the temple, the abomination of desolation. And Jesus warns that when you see that, those who are in the tribulation period, you need to run away. And this will wind up with the temple being destroyed. Now we're going to get some insight in just a bit. So stay with me. If the Antichrist doesn't come from Rome, where does he come from? Since again, the emphasis of this passage is on the 69th and 70th week. So the prince who's come is pertaining to that 70th week. And we'll take a look at this in just a bit. Okay, come back with me. Second Thessalonians chapter two. So we have the falling away. And the man of sin is revealed. That's how you would know if you were in the day of Christ, because you would have the apostasy that occurs during the tribulation. And then the Antichrist is clearly on the scene. He's identified further as the son of perdition, the son who belongs to the category of perdition or destruction. Judas is given the same designation, interestingly, in John chapter 17 and verse 12. He was an apostate. He had identified with Jesus, but then ultimately demonstrated he was not a true saint by his insurrection. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then hanged himself. Now, as we look here at the Antichrist in verse 4, observe it says about this man who opposes 
and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Hmm. He opposes Jesus Christ and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. And notice the result here given by the two words so that he sits as God where in the temple of God. There's no temple right now in Jerusalem, but one will be built that the Antichrist will go into and proclaim himself to be God, which he will later destroy. He sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do we have any other scripture to give us more details concerning this period of time? And I think the answer is yes. And I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. We have a passage in scripture that has traditionally been associated with the devil. But I think when you study the context of this passage, it has nothing to do with Satan and has everything to do with the man of sin, the Antichrist. Because in Isaiah chapter 14, in verses 12 through 14, we have the five I will statements. I believe, and I'm going to show you why, that it is the Antichrist who in the middle of the tribulation, who violates his covenant with Israel, goes into the temple that will be built in Jerusalem, and he will go into the Holy of Holies, and the world will see that he is proclaiming that he himself is the true God and not Jesus Christ. So as you're in Isaiah chapter 14, I want to point some things out to you because our context is the most important determiner of meaning. We have to take a look and see what the passage is teaching and the surrounding text is showing us. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you, and this is critical. Isaiah 13, 1 through 14, 23 is a prophecy about the future destruction of, and catch this, Babylon, Babylon. That's the entire context, 13, 1 to 14, 23, future destruction of Babylon. If you want to springboard in your minds ahead, think about Revelation 17 and 18 with the future destruction of Babylon, a literal destruction of Babylon, it'll occur there. So notice in verse 12, it says now, how you are fallen from heaven, and it says, O Lucifer. And everybody goes, oh, this is the devil. Well, first of all, the proper noun, Lucifer, does not come from the Hebrew text. It comes from the Latin Vulgate. It's not a good translation. Truly, the word means a shining or a bright one, and it should have never been made a proper noun. So it's talking here about how you are fallen from heaven, O shiny one. Notice the sun of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. May I just point out to you here in Isaiah chapter 14. This is unlike Ezekiel 28 that speaks about Satan clearly, who is identified as being in the Garden of Eden. Remember Genesis chapter 3 with the fall? This says nothing about Satan. It says everything about the king of Babylon, the one who weakened the nations. And he's identified, even in our text here, as a man. Let your eyes come down, staying in chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. 
those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the, and everyone give me the word. Yes, man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms. Isn't this what the Antichrist did? Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of the prisoners. So I want you to see that this individual in Isaiah 14 is clearly identified as a man. He will experience decay. Look at chapter 14 and verse 11. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and worms cover you. A man would be subject to decay. This is a man. Uh, I also want you to see uh, concerning his death, uh, now in chapter 14, 18 through 20 all the kings of the nations all of them sleep in glory everyone in his own house but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch like the garment of those who are slain thrust through with a sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot you will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Just want to point out very clearly that the wickedness of this individual is exposed. He's a man. He's subject to decay. He is like other kings that will be destroyed, but his situation will be unique. And then just taking it a step further, look at verse 21, Isaiah 14, 21. He comes from a long line of sinners. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers. He comes from a long line of sinners. Sounds like a man to me, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. So now with this said, look at verse 13. Because the one who weakened the nations, the shining one, is cut down. Verse 13. For you have said in your heart, notice the five I wills, and I believe these are the statements he will make, the Antichrist, as he sits in the temple, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and proclaim that he is the true God. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This individual who comes from Babylon, I believe, is the Antichrist that is sitting in the temple in Jerusalem making these statements and has not come from Rome. I think the scripture shows clearly that the king of Babylon is the future Antichrist. They'll note that he is a man. He is a man. To build upon this with these five I will statements, turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Further information on the Antichrist and his blasphemous ways, which fits perfectly with the statements from Isaiah chapter 14. Revelation 13, 
Verse 1, then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. And to the ancients, a sea beast was greater than a land beast, having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads. Notice this, a blasphemous name. He has all these affiliations with other kingdoms, but he's also a blasphemer. Notice here as well, verse 2, now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and a mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, Satan, gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if he had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon, because Satan is behind him, who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? But notice in verse 5, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he continued, notice, for 42 or three and a half years. 42 months or three and a half years. He's a blasphemer that fits Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 14. And then listen to Daniel 7 and verse 25 about the Antichrist. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. So when you put all the passages together, the timing, there are only two points of focus in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Christ's triumphal entry and death. 69th week and the 70th week being the tribulation period. And that is when the Antichrist will destroy the temple. That's why you have in Ezekiel 40 to 48, a design for a new millennial temple. Isaiah 14 fits perfectly because it's the king of Babylon that I believe will give these blasphemies that when Jesus Christ comes back, we'll put down. Now back here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice in verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you, the imperfect tense, I kept on telling you these things. Point number one, embrace biblical eschatology for a steadfast faith. That's verses 1 through 5. Embrace biblical eschatology for a steadfast faith. You have to understand the end times as the scripture reveals them so that you can act accordingly and not be confused by the events going on around you. Verse six, and now you know what is restraining. Notice the neuter, what here is restraining. Something is holding back the Antichrist worldwide domination but notice it goes on to say that he may be revealed in his own time as jesus christ came upon the scene at a designated time right galatians 4 4 but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son god knew when to dispatch his son in the same way satan will come at a designated time Paul continues in verse 7, for the mystery, a sacred secret once hid but now revealed, of lawlessness is already at work. 1 John 2.18 tells us 
that there has been a spirit of antichrist. We've had that from the first century. Those who deny Jesus's deity, those who say that Jesus never came in the flesh, spirit of antichrist has been going on 2000 years, but that points to the ultimate antichrist. And this is now who we are studying about in second Thessalonians chapter two. Now observe the word. What is restraining is now personalized to he only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So we go from the neuter to the masculine. Why? Well, Holy Spirit, Hagiath Numa, is neuter. So grammatically speaking, it's very appropriate to say what is restraining because the Holy Spirit is the restraining force because being in the child of God who continue to be on the earth until the time of the rapture, grammatically it's fine to use the neuter. That's what Paul does in the beginning. But he transitions then to the masculine, he. Why? Because now the personality or the personhood of the Holy Spirit is being emphasized, so he is called exactly that. He who restrains. For a moment... Think about who is in you. Paul would say in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, who is the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit himself is in the child of God. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, by one spirit, we're all baptized in one body. In essence, when we believed on Christ, the spirit of God came to take up residence. During the church age, beginning at Pentecost, right up until the time of the rapture, each child of God has within the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is characterized as the worldwide restraining force that is keeping the Antichrist from coming on the scene. When the rapture occurs, there might be a brief period of time, but then you have the signing of the covenant. The Antichrist will make with Israel for seven years, but this is when he comes upon the scene. Now that the spirit of God's predominant witness through the child of God during the church age is removed. Yes, the spirit of God will still have ministry during the tribulation, but the indwelling ministry of the spirit to each believer will be taken out of the way. So our second point is this. The Antichrist reign is restrained by the Holy Spirit. Let me just take a moment and share with you the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, down in verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, says Jesus to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper being a reference to the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, down in verse 13, here in John 16, 16, 13. However, when he, notice this now speaking of his personhood, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. But what is the essence of what the spirit is doing? He's the restrainer. 
He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And when he is taken out, then it makes way for the Antichrist to come in. Now, our third point. Jesus' second coming will end the Antichrist rule. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Notice the timing. Jesus had warned his disciples, really for future generations, that when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple of God, as predicted by Daniel, that you need to flee. That's Matthew twenty-four, fifteen, and 16. We now have the Antichrist having rule on the earth, and he is revealed. Whom the Lord, gets to be great news here, will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. I want to have you focus upon two key verbs. Number one is consume. From ana, up, hey, lisco, to take. So it's to take up. So to consume here is the idea to take up. But notice the word destroy, and I think this confuses some folk. Literally means to render inoperative, useless or ineffective. You see, when Christ comes back and he deals with the Antichrist, he doesn't annihilate him. It's not like, poof, he's gone. He doesn't even have him put to death at that point. Why? Listen carefully to Revelation 19 and 20. The two, these two, the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the false prophet were cast alive into the lake of fire. So being consumed and the idea of being rendered inoperative gives us the concept, if you will, that Christ comes and then has them cast alive where? In the lake of fire. That's what it'll be with the devil forever and ever and ever. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Remember that it's Satan behind the power of the Antichrist. Reminded of that in Revelation 13, 2. The dragon gave him his power. Remember again, dragon is Satan. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So what do we have with the Antichrist? He had this power, all power, achieving power. He's a dominant force worldwide throughout the tribulation. There are signs that will be offered, significant as well. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, because not only do we have the beast, but we have the false prophet, like the Holy Spirit who points us to Christ, the false prophet, the member of the unholy trinity, points people to the Antichrist. So in Revelation 13, notice in verses 13 and 14, He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs. See the word signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So you have the false prophet doing these signs in the sight of the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. 
That's the abomination of desolation. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast, this is the abomination of desolation, should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Point being that when Paul exposes the Antichrist as having all power signs, he also possesses wonders. Tereo means I keep. The idea is that he is so powerful that he keeps everyone's attention by the things that he is doing. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, as we begin to wrap this up, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Please note the word deception. It's key here. There is a worldwide delusion that has taken place. Why are the people deceived? Because they did not receive the love of the truth. Who is Jesus? John fourteen six. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. They didn't receive the one who is the way, the truth, the life. They rather embraced the lie. The lie being that the Antichrist is God. That's the lie, that's the deception that they all buy into. And because they did not receive the love of the truth, they could not be saved. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. In essence, they didn't believe in Christ. They didn't want anything to do with his message or his messengers, and there were many in Revelation 7, 144,000 Jewish evangelists going throughout the world preaching Christ. Revelation 11, the two witnesses, I believe, that will occupy the second half of the tribulation. They get ignored. And then also you had in Revelation 14, 6, an angel flying through the sky preaching the everlasting gospel. They didn't want Christ, but they receive his replacement, if you will. And the word anti, antichrist, can mean either against or it can be in place of, they take the replacement there, the Antichrist. They buy into the strong delusion that the Antichrist is God. And what's the result here? That they all may be condemned, see, since they rejected the gospel, who did not believe the truth. It doesn't say they were predestined to hell, does it? It simply says they did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's contemplate everything that's just been proclaimed number one embrace biblical eschatology for a steadfast faith my encouragement to you let the word of god speak study it in its context look at bible prophecy look at its fulfillment allow yourself and your mind to understand the workings of God through the ages understand that the rapture is the next event on God's eschatological calendar. We are to be looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will not go through the tribulation. Revelation 3.10 says we are kept from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world. And the promise given to the church of Philadelphia is good not only for them, but us. Why? Each of the churches receives the statement, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have not been appointed to wrath. We learn from connecting 1 Thessalonians 1.10 with chapter 5 and verse 9, but we are appointed 
to eternal life. So we're not to go through the period of wrath known as the tribulation. Revelation 6.17 calls it such. We are not to experience eternal damnation because we know Jesus Christ. So embrace biblical eschatology for a steadfast faith. When these saints got confused, received the lie, they lost their hope, and it made them to be troubled and shaken. Don't allow that to happen to you. Know the truth. It will truly set you free. Number two, the Antichrist reign is restrained by the Holy Spirit. You are an influence. The Spirit of God is within you, child of God. And wherever you go, the power of God is in you. The Spirit of God convicts of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Walk closely with God. Enable the Spirit of God to do all the work he wants to do through you. Understanding that collectively, our presence on planet Earth is what keeps the Antichrist from coming on the scene. That must tell us the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the Antichrist reign is restrained by the Holy Spirit, but it's also fine to pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. He's coming. Let's be ready for him. Number three, Jesus' second coming will end the Antichrist rule. We'll have the rapture. The seven years of tribulation officially begins with the signing of the covenant with the Antichrist with Israel. At the midpoint, he breaks the covenant. That is when I believe he will go into the temple, use those five I will statements claiming that he himself is God. The end of the tribulation, Christ comes back, snatches him up with the false prophets, throws them alive into the lake of fire, it's done. Jesus' second coming will end the Antichrist rule. So today, we don't look for signs and wonders. We're not even looking for that second coming. We are looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stay focused on him, but let us understand these important truths so that we don't get disturbed and troubled. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. It's a lot to digest, but your word is wonderful. Father, I think in Revelation 10, when John consumes the little book given to him, Father, at first there must be an excitement because he knows truth. But then on the other hand, his stomach turns bitter because of just knowing the judgment coming on the world. Help us to live in light of your truth. Help us to gather together, make a point for us to be with other saints, to encourage each other in the things of the Lord, knowing that it's our collective influence that is keeping the Antichrist from coming on the scene. Ultimately looking forward to our gathering together Lord, not just uh, in local assemblies as we're able to do now, but it's that future time when Christ will come back and take us all to be with him. May we long for that day, understanding, though, that now is the period of evangelism, too, to make the most of what we know and to share the gospel with others, because when we're taken out, we could no longer speak the gospel of Jesus Christ for others to be saved. Help us to keep these things in mind. In Jesus' name I pray. 